Welcome to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. Religion for Life is a co-production of WETS on the campus of East Tennessee State University in Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC on the campus of Emory and Henry College in Emory, Virginia. My name is John Schuck. I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church of Elizabethton. You can find out about us on our website, fpcelizabethton.org. You can find out more information about this program as well as uh, articles, sermons, and all kinds of wonderful things at my website, religionforlife.com religionforlife.com. We are doing a series at Religion for Life on the future of faith. What is faith? What is religion coming to? How is it changing? And it is being uh, changed in significant ways. Obviously, uh, science is being taken more seriously regarding faith and religion. Uh, Beliefs and doctrines and all of those creeds and whatnot may be important to some, but for an increasing number of people, they are becoming less important. And ethics and doing and belonging are becoming more and more important. Uh, What should we do? What are the practices uh, involved in our religious communities? And they're becoming a bit more eclectic, too, as we draw from all kinds of different faith traditions interacting together in new ways. And it's it's very exciting as we are looking to the future of religion uh, in the United States and all over the world. My guest is Diana Butler-Bass. She is the author, speaker, and independent scholar specializing in American religion and culture. She holds a Ph.D. in religious studies from Duke University and is the author of eight books, including in 2006, Christianity for the Rest of Us. In 2008, she published A People's History of Christianity, The Other Side of the Story. Her latest book is entitled Christianity After Religion, The End of Church and the Birth of a New Spiritual Awakening. Dr. Bass regularly consults with religious organizations, leads conferences for religious leaders, and teaches and preaches in a variety of venues. She blogs at the Huffington Post, uh, regularly comments on religion, politics, and culture in the media, including USA Today, Time, Newsweek, The Washington Post, CNN, Fox, PBS, and NPR. From 1995 to 2000, she wrote a weekly column on American religion for the New York Times Syndicate. She's a contributing editor to Sojourners Magazine and has written widely in the religious press, including Christian Century, Clergy Journal, and uh, Congregations. You can find more information about her and her work on the web, dianabutlerbass.com. And she is with me via Skype from her home in Virginia to discuss, among other things, her new book, Christianity After Religion, The End of Church and the Birth of a New Spiritual Awakening. Dr. Bass, welcome to Religion for Life. Uh, Hi, John. It's great to be with you. Your book has a provocative title, uh, Christianity After Religion, The End of Church. Do you think religion and church are ending? Well, um, provocative titles are sort of the uh, way that my uh, publisher uh, loves to go. And uh, I think that they they are indeed ending. So this provocative title is true in the sense that uh, conventional constructions of church and conventional understandings of religion are passing away. And we are coming into a new time and a new space in which people are going to be uh, reinventing uh, what it means to be a person of faith and reinventing the ways in which we gather and worship and serve our neighbors. 
One of the phrases um, that you unpack throughout the book is is one I often hear. I think we'll be coming back to it in the course of our interview. And after um, reading your book, I now appreciate it uh, when people say, I'm spiritual, but not religious. I used to think uh, that was, I don't know, individualistic or flighty or something like that. But after reading your book, I said, oh, I think I know what what she's getting at now. So when did you first hear that phrase? And, and when then did it begin to, to strike a chord with you that this is something you need to look at? You know, I actually first heard that phrase, uh, spiritual but not religious, when I read a book in the late 1980s by a sociologist of religion named Wade Clark Roof. Uh, the book is called A Generation of Seekers, in which he did a very sophisticated academic, and it was a quite quite a wonderful and and actually kind of a historically earth-shattering study of uh, religion and baby boomers. And um, in that study, conducted in the 80s, he found out that a large percentage of baby boomers consider them spiritual, themselves spiritual but not religious. I'd never heard it before then, um, but as a person who is trained in religion and, and has studied this academically. I've been familiar with that phrase for, phrase for a long time. So it never really has been a terribly offensive phrase to me. It's always been a descriptive phrase. And I, I've been surprised uh, in recent years that a lot of Christian leaders in particular have understood the phrase spiritual but not religious as what you say. Uh, something that's kind of a flighty excuse uh, for people not to attend church. Um, mm. And uh, I try in my new book uh, to get us off of that judgmental uh, place regarding that phrase mm -hmm. and instead help uh, people who care about religion and care about uh, traditional churches to understand what is really being uh, expressed when people use the phrase spiritual but not religious to explain their faith lives. Uh, your book really made clear um, that the model for church that we've employed for the past 100 years is really a corporate model. And this is where I, I think I might have, as a professional clergy person, my own, uh, I understand why we professional clergy types have a problem with that phrase. Um, we have headquarters, franchises, manuals of operation. Uh, we're middle managers in career tracks selling a product. It's an entire institutional edifice uh, designed to sell Studebakers, and, and fewer and fewer people want Studebakers. So um, I realize I'm kind of part of the problem, um, and maybe that has as, uh, the idea of uh, spiritual but not religious is a threatening thing to the institution itself. Um, do, do you see this, this kind of whole institution starting to crumble a little bit and transforming into something else? Yeah, that's the, that's the part that's going away. Um, when I talk about the end of religion, I'm really talking about the end of those kinds of conventional structures and organizations of, of religion. Mm -hmm. And what's sort of interesting about them, I wouldn't want to say, John, that you're the problem. <laughs> because <laughs> well, uh, most of my friends are clergy, and if they hear me saying that they're the problem, I, I, I think I'll stop getting Christmas cards. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but what is the problem is that we inherited a particular, this generation inherited a particular structure of church um, that has become problematic. And um, we got this structure, it was created mostly in the late 1800s and early 1900s. So it's been, it's a structure we're familiar with and one that uh, we know how to work with um, because it's been around for about 
three, two or three generations. Uh, but the truth of it is, is that it was new um, at the turn of the last century. It was not the way that people used to organize church. If you go back to the earlier part of the 19th century, um, before the Civil War, say, um, church denominations were not national organizations with big headquarter buildings or national publishing companies or even national seminaries. Um, denominations were uh, basically regional associations of people who understood themselves to be the heirs of a tradition of Calvinism or Anglicanism, prayer books and theologies. Um, and these regional associations uh, were usually formed around uh, styles of devotion and worship. It, was, it wasn't until uh, the 1880s or so that these sort of regional groupings of Christians that found that, you know, were around these particular families of faith uh, founded the larger kinds of bureaucratic national organizations. Um, and they didn't do that in order to torture Christians in the 21st century. <laughs> um, they did it because uh, they wanted to organize their work in order to reach out to the maximum number of people. And they were especially concerned a hundred years ago with issues of poverty and education uh, because they wanted to solve big national problems and they wanted to solve them in spiritual and religious ways. And so it just seemed to make more sense to have national organizations to do that rather than these kinds of loose, loose uh, regional associations. So what we have now as church is not what we've always had as church. Mm -hmm. Um, as Americans. And I think that, um, you know, we kind of forget that. If something has been a, a form of organization for 50 or 100 years, we think it goes back to the Apostle Paul. Um, but the truth is, is that the way that we do church now only goes back to IBM, not, uh, not Jesus. And so, so the form uh, needs to change. Uh, as any smart company in the 21st century knows, is you cannot do business in the same way you did business 100 years ago and expect in any way, shape, or form to be successful or to reach a new audience. And so, so um, that's the problem, is that we've become wed to some structures that are now unwieldy and uh, unworkable. Uh, it does not mean that Christianity is unwieldy or unworkable. It's still a living faith. And it does not mean that ministers are all going to be put out of work. We still can use them uh, for various and sundry things and that they have viable and, and, and vibrant vocations in the 21st century. But everything is going to have to be different. And so, so that's what I'm really urging people to think about. And and to relate that to the spiritual but not religious piece, a lot of people who are opting out of church are not opting out of the idea of being Christian. Um, indeed, uh, many people find the teaching and person of Jesus as compelling or more compelling than ever and do want to, in some way, shape, or form, embody the passion of Jesus uh, towards the world and, and towards their neighbor uh, that, they, that they understand to be. Uh, part of Christian faith and certainly of the Bible. Uh, but what they are opting out of is they're opting out of the organizational structure that we, as it currently exists. 
so that so people are actually making that distinction. They're 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 making a distinction between the church as it is and uh, a lively life of Jesus in the world as they imagine it can be. And that's a pretty sophisticated criticism of the church. And f- as for me, I'm really glad that people are making it because it calls uh, Christian leaders uh, to account uh, to what's really important. And if we can't take that, if you can't take that criticism, uh, I think that means you're kind of a small person. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. so I really want us to be able to hear what folks are saying to us. Absolutely. Diana Butler-Bass is my guest on Religion for Life, if you're just joining us. Her book is Christianity After Religion, The End of Church, and the Birth of a New Spiritual Awakening. Uh, So much of Christianity, uh, when I hear uh, from others, and and I I say it myself, uh, comes across as believing six impossible things before breakfast. Uh, One of my favorite lines from the White Queen in Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass, and you take it on a different way, that this idea of spirituality versus uh, religion is not so much about believing things, but about having a relationship or beloving. Uh, Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, the the switch towards being spiritual is not just a sort of a, everybody's longing to walk on the beach and you know are rejecting uh, institutional religion. But what it's it's really talking about is that that people in North America. So this this includes uh, folks, listeners in Canada as well. Um, people in North America are longing for a new kind of experiential faith, uh, something that makes a difference to their own lives and to their families and to their immediate uh, immediate communities. Christianity, as it has been inherited over the last couple hundred years, has emphasized belief. Mm-hmm. It's emphasized ideas about God and said, if you believe these things about God, if you believe these things about Jesus, if you believe these things about the Eucharist or about church polity, whatever, you're a Christian, you're an Episcopalian, you're a Presbyterian, you're a Baptist, and you're okay. You'll go to heaven. That's the way we tend to think about Christianity in Western culture. And that way um, is not speaking uh, to culture any longer. When you shift over to the realm of experience and people want to uh, figure out who God is and who Jesus is, they're not asking for answers that would be sort of doctrinal statements. Instead, they want to know, how is it that this God makes a difference to my life? How is it that Jesus can still be present in the world that is hurting? Um, How is it that um, my community uh, can become a, a more loving, more just place, if indeed there is a God who cares for all people. That switch, to me, I talk about that as the switch from believing to beloving. You talk about um, uh, becoming a person of faith in, in an interesting way. Uh, rather than think of it as believing and then behaving right and then belonging to the club, uh, you reverse the order. You talk about uh, becoming an apprentice, and, and you use the image of knitting uh, in your book. Can, can you tell us how that works? <laughs> the the classical sort of arrangement of, of conventional religion, as we've inherited over the last couple hundred years, is what you just said, that you believe something about God first, and then you behave in certain ways. You behave in Catholic ways or Baptist ways or or Presbyterian ways. 
and then you become a member of that particular religion. So you, you know, kneel before a bishop or you sign up to be in a member's class or however that, that works in, in your particular church. Um, what is happening now is that the, the way in which people are asking the questions and this longing for an experience of God that is is really reshaping the way we understand human nature and the way we understand community and the way we understand um, our sort of global humanity, uh, that's making this whole paradigm of faith uh turn around. And so what's what's happening now is we start out not with believing ideas about God, but instead uh, we're asking the question of uh, to whom do I belong? Um, who, who is my life connected with? Um, what are the relationships that form the nexus of who I am as a person? And so I, I talked about this in the book by using this image of a, of a, of a knitting group. Uh, not really a club, uh, but a, a knitting group. And um, I said, well, you know, if you want to learn how to knit, what do you do? You don't uh, generally go out and form some theory about knitting and then, uh, you know, sit in some dark place isolated and try to behave like a person who knows how to knit. Uh, but instead, you go and you find somebody who knows how to knit. Uh, you reach out to a friend or you might go to a local uh, knitting shop or perhaps there's a, a group of women who uh, meet together after their kids go to school and they, they knit and they talk together. Um, and, and so you, you find someone uh, to teach you how to do it. And it's from that uh, relationship that then you move towards certain kinds of behaviors. You learn the skills of how to handle the needles. You learn uh, the stitches. You begin to invent patterns. And then finally, out of the belonging to this group of women and learning how to knit, you develop ideas about knitting. You might develop the idea that knitting is... Um, uh, is relaxing to you, that it relieves your stress, that it is artistic. It might bring forth different ideas of your creativity. Um, you see that it's a healing enterprise. Um, you might potentially develop some entirely new theory about knitting, you know, who, who knows? But um, that image of the group of people who gathers to share insights and expertise and to form relationships and friendships with one another and then who pattern a life um, out of those relationships and then finally from that pattern of life um, understand bigger things about the universe I think that is uh, the way in which we can begin to think about faith um, in the future and I would think that churches and, frankly, synagogues and temples and mm -hmm. other kinds of um, faith communities who can reimagine uh, their communities much more like this kind of group of mentoring and teaching friends uh, who practice something together and then understand uh, themselves and God and their neighbor more fully. I think that's the way that churches and communities of faith will be structured in the future. 
If you're just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Diana Butler-Bass. She's the author of Christianity After Religion, The End of Church and the Birth of a New Spiritual Awakening. She regularly consults with religious organizations and leads conferences for religious leaders and teaches and preaches in a variety of venues. And um, it seems, previously on this program, I had a psychologist, uh, Jonathan Haidt, and he wrote a book a few years ago about happiness, and he discussed a formula in which happiness is... uh, our set point, but it can be improved by basically two things, uh, our quality and quantity of our relationships and using our strengths for meaningful activities, doing something meaningful in the world and creating really good bonds. And it seems to me that uh, congregations, synagogues, temples, a variety of, would be natural settings for that to happen. Uh, just open up the fellowship hall, uh, provide mentors to do some meaningful spiritual activities and and uh, create some relationships. Have you seen this uh, kind of thing taking place already? Um, it, yeah, I actually have. In the early part of this last decade, I, I did an academic study for the Lilly Endowment. I got a nice grant to go out and look at what was making for um, successful churches. And I was not interested in the idea of success in hunting up all the big churches in America. I was looking uh, for examples of success uh, in churches that were deepening people's understandings of who God is, um, deepening their sense of love for God and their sense of love for neighbor, and giving people a greater sense of meaning and purpose in life. And um, I ran into uh, literally dozens and dozens of congregations that were much more uh, fun- functioning in this this uh, future-oriented model um, rather than just uh, doing church as they had inherited it from their grandparents. So that whole vision of the church as kind of a guild or the church as a community of friends, and frankly, there is a biblical language and, and even a kind of a, um, a language that sometimes sounds a little bit like conservative evangelical language to talk about this, but uh, it's a community of disciples. And if you look at the New Testament itself, you know, Jesus didn't found a church with a national headquarters in Jerusalem. Um, Jesus gathered uh, some folks around. You know, we know it was uh, 12 men, and uh, we think that there were actually more women in that mm-hmm. early inner circle. And so the, 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 the sort of first circle of friends was around 70 people. And uh, it was those people that Jesus literally hung out with and formed relationships with, and they walked and did pilgrimage, and they talked with one another, and they learned from each other, and they did stuff together. They healed people. They fed people. They offered hospitality. Uh, they told stories. And to me, that's the, that's the vision of what a spiritual community needs to be in the 21st century, a community of friends that does things together, uh, healing, offering hospitality, feeding others, and telling stories. And so that's what the New Testament is. You know, it isn't a, a handbook of doctrine. It's really the memory of the early Christian community, of a community of first belonging and beloving Jesus, a community of then behaving as Jesus wanted them to behave, um, offering practices of of hospitality and grace, and then finally of coming to a set of new beliefs about the the 
the God who created the world. And so that's a fabulous understanding of the New Testament. And I think that um, it's a, it, it creates the New Testament. In, it, it gives me a sense of the New Testament as a living document, a living witness uh, to what it means to be uh, a Christian who is steeped in an experience of God, not just uh, holding particular beliefs about God. Diana Butler-Bass, my guest, Christianity After Religion, The End of Church and the Birth of a New Spiritual Awakening is her new book. Talking about that new spiritual awakening, and, and uh, is it's not just oriented toward Christianity. I'm, you, you mentioned in the book that people are drawing from a number of different practices from other faith traditions. In fact, you talk about a spiritual experience you had uh, in your book, Going to the Bank, uh, and the bank tellers were of different faiths, and after your encounter, you left the bank with tears in your eyes. Uh, I, I uh, admired that story because I think that so much of Christianity has often been so exclusive and we're the only way, and this new spiritual awakening might be a drawing and a connecting with other faith traditions, isn't it? Yeah, one of the uh, one of the things I love about the history of religion in the United States is this um, great set of stories we have about these periodic awakenings that shake our uh, country. And I try, I I do tell that story about a Muslim and a Hindu and a Catholic who were the tellers in uh, my local bank, and how we got into this wonderful conversation during Holy Week. Um, about God in our midst and the spiritual practices in each one of our traditions. And it was so moving uh, because all of the four women who were involved in this conversation, uh, we understood at a profoundly deep level as we uh, shared our stories that we were really talking about uh, the same centering of love, the same God uh, in the universe, and that uh, we didn't need a theology professor to tell us uh, one way or another whether we were right or wrong. We just had all experienced this same God. And so I think that that's one of the things that's happening, is that we are learning to reach across these humanly constructed boundaries. And when we when we do go across those boundaries, we find that God is in and with and through many uh of people and practices you did not expect. This is an excellent book, Christianity After Religion, The End of Church and the Birth of a New Spiritual Awakening. Diana Butler-Bass has been my guest. Uh, you can find uh, more information about her and her work on the web, dianabutlerbass.com. And Diana, thank you so much for being for this book and for being with me on Religion for Life. Oh, you're welcome, John. You've been listening to Religion for Life, a program at the intersection of religion, social justice, and public life. My name is John Shuck, and I'm the minister of the First Presbyterian Church in Elizabethton, Tennessee. You can find out more information about my congregation on its website, www.fpcelizabethton.org. You can find out more information about this interview with Diana Butler-Bass, as well as links to podcasts and upcoming programs at religionforlife.com. Religionforlife.com. Find Religion for Life also on Facebook, Twitter, and iTunes. Religion for Life is a co-production of WETS-FM and WETS-HD1, Johnson City, Tennessee, and WEHC-FM, Emory, Virginia. Be well.